Greetings again, everyone. I hope some of you read a recent issue of the U.S. News and World Report in which the question, who wrote the Bible, is answered in about five or six separate articles dealing with the Old Testament, the epistles of Paul, the so-called Catholic or general epistles, and of course all of the Bible. There is a little bit of a picture of part of the fresco, I think, perhaps from the Vatican Museum here. Very interesting. I want to just give you a couple of little excerpts from it and another issue of a recent weekly news magazine, Newsweek, I think the most recent one, because if it weren't enough that our society is trembling on the brink of total disintegration with the infrastructure of society and the big cities in decay, with drugs, crime, murder, divorce, abandonment, desertion, child molestation, a breakdown in communication between the races, a tremendous steady influx of Orientals from all of the impoverished uh, third world countries of Asia. So many troubles you could zero in on any one of them, whether you're talking about AIDS and the recent demonstrations against the government, whether you're talking about state, county, and city budgets, whether you're talking about white flight away from inner urban areas and the lack of a tax base to provide for reasonable amenities for the people who live in the big cities of the United States, you could take the fabric of society and look at it segment by segment, entertainment, assess and appraise that, what you would say about entertainment in the light of God's word, and you could see the kind of society in which we live and ask yourself a simple question. If there is a tug of war between Almighty God and the forces of good and right and decency on the one hand, and Satan the devil and the forces of prurient pornography, of rot, of filth, of bestiality, of crimes that are unspeakable, on the other hand, who seems to be winning? Well, I think any rational person would say it seems that today in this world of crime, of sin, of the threat of war, and the very imminent possibility of war breaking out in the Middle East, it looks like the devil has the upper hand. Certainly no one can say the world is in a saved condition. Now, as if that were not enough, every now and then an attack is made upon the very word of God itself. I find some of this very fascinating. I won't read but a little bit of one of the articles on the original Hebrew Bible, because I think some of you may not know what some of the latest statements of so-called higher criticism really are. A Yale professor, Harold Bloom, recently published a book called Book of J. It is, of course, sensational and has achieved the bestseller list partly because of its provocative thesis that the author of the oldest parts of the Bible, the stories of Adam and Eve, Noah, Joseph, and Moses, was a woman, a descendant of King David, working in the 10th century. Despite its popular appeal, that thesis is the least controversial part of Bloom's argument. It goes on and gets better. I will only read to a few of them, but the reason he took that title the J, or Book of J, is so-called because she, the writer of the Bible, referred to God as Yahweh, J-A-W-E-H. And she was not a religious writer at all. It was only through subsequent meddlings of, quote, second-rate plagiarists and moralizing men, the author argues, that, quote, her script 
became scripture, end quote. Interestingly enough, from the time of the earliest concept of so-called higher criticism, when at about the time of printing, the days of Gutenberg, clear down in the 1400s in medieval Europe, the idea of the criticism of text extant throughout the professing Christian world of going back and determining what were the very oldest manuscripts and finding with a little bit of alarm that the very oldest ones of the Greek New Testament Bible could be no older than the 4th century A.D. From that time to this, people have sought to pull apart the Bible. I call it the loose brick theory. If they can find the one loose brick at the bottom of the wall, they can pull it loose, the whole structure comes tumbling down. German rationalists and the so-called higher critics were very quick to leap upon the concept of certain alleged discrepancies in the Bible from one book to another, that one author may quote a certain number of men, another author may quote another number of men in the same army. And then you look very carefully into some of the Bible handbooks, John Kitto and others who explain it, an Angus Bible handbook, and they will show you the one stated armed men of war, and the other just said men, and so the difficulty is resolved. But if there was even an alleged surface difficulty in the Bible, and there are quite a number of them, we spent a great deal of time going over those in college and going through the origin of the earliest text of the Bible and the transmission from one land or from one language to another and the translation and how it was done and the preservation of the text, the almost alarming discoveries that at one of the monasteries called St. Catherine at the foot of Mount Sinai, anciently one of the oldest of all of the manuscripts that today is in a Vatican museum called the Vaticanus was in fact being used by the monks for wrapping paper and little by little they were even burning some of its leaves because it wasn't looked upon as anything of any note. So for centuries the battle has gone on so that today large numbers of the ministry who assume the pulpits in churches like the American Episcopalian or the English Anglican Church, certainly Catholic priests, Nearly all of the ministry that come out of the great theological seminaries of the Lutherans and those more formal churches other than Southern Baptists who do believe the Bible as we know it in the King James Version, at least as we can determine its oldest and most original intent, is the inviolable Word of God. You have to hand them that. Many of those people do. But the more formal mainline churches do not believe that at all. And, of course, the Roman Catholic Church places the Bible on a par with the tradition of the fathers and with the word of the Pope. So the word of the Pope when he speaks from his holy see is on one level and the tradition of the fathers is on the same level and the Bible is on the same level. And those three are the three authorities of the Roman Catholic Church. It might surprise you to know that large percentages, far more than 50%, of the people who graduate from theological seminaries where allegedly they go to learn about the Bible, to learn about homiletics, and learn about apologetics, and learn about how to speak, and how to teach, and how to understand the Bible. Come out of those seminaries fully convinced the Bible is not divinely inspired, and fully convinced that Jesus Christ is not going to visibly come to this earth the second time, convinced there is no second coming of Christ, and convinced of many other of the fundamental doctrines of the Bible, that is, that they are not, in fact, true. It's no wonder when you see even the layman reading material like this, written by religious writers working for the Time Life Organization, which is a Catholic organization that used to pertain to the loose, the loose family. 
Not surprisingly, it says, religious scholars are queuing up to critique Bloom's ideas. Though his work has numerous defenders, it is blasphemy to those who believe the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, was divinely revealed through Moses. Secular critics are nearly as livid as well they might be. Some reproach Bloom for relying on a new translation by David Rosenberg, which jettisons the high language of King James for a rougher tone full of puns and irony. They call it clangy, klutzy, overwrought, and often wrong. Berkeley professor Robert Alter, author of The Art of Biblical Narrative, accuses Rosenberg of, quote, misconstruing biblical terms and says this is less an English version of the original than a prefabricated interpretation masquerading as a translation. Well, of course, Rosenberg is a Jew and is therefore given a very great deal of bias against German critics and others and thinks that the New Testament is largely anti-Semitic. Bloom, of course, dismisses their criticisms. Listen to this boastful statement, quote, I'd put my Hebrew against theirs any day. Isn't it fascinating that a latter-day man who is American and a Jew goes to a university, is educated in all of these writings, probably has an LLD, a doctor of letters, maybe he even understands some of the ancient languages, I don't know, perhaps not, but claims to be a Hebrew scholar and boasts, I would put my Hebrew against theirs any day, looks at the earliest available Hebrew manuscripts and decides that what he is seeing is the style that a woman might have used, rather than the style that a man might have used. Fascinating. There was another bestseller years ago, I believe it was written by a Norwegian. He decided, under the influence of what I cannot say, that there was no real Jesus Christ, but a group of cultic disciples got together and they were harvesting a particular kind of a mushroom and that mushroom they flaked and dried out and then lit, set a fire, put a pillowcase over their head or something and breathed the smoke and became very, very high and they named it Jesu Christo or whatever and so actually there never was any Jesus Christ. He was merely a mushroom and the earliest beginnings of the Christian religion began with a cult who were getting high on a mushroom that they called Jesus Christ. That was also swallowed by some people. Do you want to write a bestseller? It's sure to be a bestseller if you attack the Word of God, if you uphold sodomy, if you uphold homosexuality, if you take some of the Satan advocate points of view which are incredibly unpopular with the Southern Baptists and others, you're sure to write a bestseller. He adds that disputes over translations have always dogged physical, uh, biblical scholars. Even with the help of archaeology and philology, absolute judgments as to the meaning of a 3,000-year-old language remain impossible. Quote, all our accounts of the Bible, he wrote, are scholarly fictions or religious fantasies. Interesting. A little later on at the end of the article, which is well worth your reading, all of the articles in the magazine are, Bloom admits to a, quote, desperate yearning to uncover a religion less ossified than what he finds in the modern Western faiths. J's Yahweh, that is, the writer, J meaning the woman who wrote the Bible, her idea of Yahweh was like a child, exuberant, capricious, and wild. Mercy. No wonder the Southern Baptists are a little bit up in arms. A God who is capricious? Is that what we see? Is it what we see in the internal evidence in the Bible? Is it what we see in nature? Is it what we see in the universe? 
Is it what we see in the orderly progression of the seasons, in the laws of science, of nuclear physics, of the refraction and reflection of light, of the cleavage properties of minerals? Is it what we see in the reproductive cycle of all things? Is it what we see in nature, in creation itself? Capriciousness. What did men do when they didn't have a Bible? I think Mr. Dark talked about that regarding the ancient patriarchs and some of those who themselves lived in a time when there was no Bible. Even in Jesus' day, there was no Bible as we know it. The keepers of the scrolls in the synagogues of Jesus' time may have had much of them. In some of the larger, more wealthy synagogues, they may have had all of them that were extant. They were under lock and key. They were more valuable than a garage full of 20 or 30 Cadillacs and antique cars. They were of absolute priceless, inestimable value, and they were only brought out virtually under guard and very carefully unrolled and then read by a person who was a cantor. Remember Eddie Cantor? His name came from that. Or a reader of the scrolls. There we hear in Nazareth of Jesus being delivered the scroll of Isaiah and reading a portion of it after other portions of those very priceless manuscripts had been read. Now, if the Bible had been created during our day, then probably certain of the church leaders, certainly my father and others among us, who had been writing so very prolifically during the 50s, 60s, and 70s, certain few of his letters, or of other letters, or articles, or fragments of them, a letter here, a portion of an article there, a hundred, two, three, four hundred years from now, may have been preserved. Some of them may have been lost and then rediscovered. And that is exactly how what we call the New Testament canon gradually became accepted. I think all of you are intelligent enough to know the New Testament consists of, in a sense, memoirs, a travel diary by a man called Luke that they even argue over as to whether Luke even wrote it. That is the book of Acts or the deeds of the apostles. Notes from those who walked and lived and worked and traveled with Jesus Christ. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark did not. He came a little later on. Luke certainly did, as did Matthew, who was Levi, a publican. And we see also letters, even personal, private letters, like John's letter to the beloved lady in 3 John. We see the so-called Catholic, meaning general or universal epistles that were not addressed to a specific church congregation like Paul's writing to Thessalonica, but to all of the dispersal of the Jews abroad, as in the case of James. And we know that the New Testament is a collection, therefore, of like memoirs, diaries, notes, journals, a collection of historical statements of Jesus, as well as letters to church congregations, personal letters and correspondence, letters from the Apostle Paul to young men with whom he worked. And the critics, of course, tear that apart because there is looming behind all of this something we will get to later that seems absolutely impossible to them, that is, divine guidance and divine inspiration. How could God possibly have guided all of that? Too many cooks spoiled the broth. Too many people, too many fragments, too much missing. Too much left to happenstance. I want to read this in a sense as an aside, although in connection with a lengthy article, the lead on December 17th issue of Newsweek, quote, and the children shall lead them Young Americans return to God. Return to God. It talks about the baby boomers. It goes through a lot of the major congregations, including the various large denominations, Catholics, Anglicans, many others. It gives a lot of statistics. 
57% or 43 million people now attend church or synagogue. More than 80% of the baby boomers consider themselves religious and believe in some kind of a life after death. The biggest group of returnees coming back to church are married with children, etc., etc. There's a very successful pastor out in the Los Angeles area who, even though a Baptist, conducted a marketing survey of the San Fernando Valley which showed that upscale congregants disdained the Baptist label. He decided also to drop the label. He said, just drop the name. People don't like denominational tags anymore. So he did. He went out to Simi Valley, and he built himself, get this, a $6 million church in Porter Ranch in the Simi Valley in a very up-and-coming, kind of a yuppie neighborhood, and it has a very large and a growing congregation. Moody's new church is going up in a former sheep pasture just off the busy Simi Valley Freeway. It might be tempting for you to think that means S-E-A-M-Y, I know, but it isn't. It's S-I-M-I, Simi Valley. And will be called, inclusively enough, Shepherd of the Hills. That's very undenominational and non-threatening. But Porter Ranch is horse country, and Moody's church with its beam ceiling, stained glass, hayloft over the entrance, huge stone fireplace, and sizzler for serving breakfast will look pretty much like a divine dude ranch. John Myrick, 42, and his wife find Moody's church perfect for themselves and their five children. They have found a church home. There's a spirit of putting people over doctrine and denominations, says Myrick, who is an advertising executive. The attitude is that they are for life, love, and liberty. It's more for things than against things. Moody has banished hellfire and damnation, and he's dropped many of the standard terms of Christian theology. If we use words like redemption or conversion, he said, they'd think we're talking about bonds. He still likes to wave a Bible when he preaches, but that too has been altered for his audience, so the version he uses and sells after services, he has his own Bible, is called Quick Scan, K-W-I-K-S-C-A-N, which highlights the essential passages, what he has decided is essential, in boldface and requires no more than 30 half-hour sittings to read the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It's a happy church, says another member, a lady, 31, the daughter of a minister who joined the congregation 12 years ago. It accepts people as they are without any sort of do's or don'ts. And when relatives visit, they all wish they had a church like ours. There they are. The sodomites, the gays, the feminists, the lesbians, freaks, oddballs, whatever, sitting there, believing this, believing that. Maybe they believe in Santeria. Maybe they believe in Satan. It doesn't matter what they believe because they're not going to hear one word about conversion. Conversion has to do with repentance. And repentance has to do with asking the question, repent of what? Repent of sin. What is sin? He doesn't get into that. Does that remind you of a prophecy where God said anciently, through Isaiah and through his prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, that there would be people saying to their pastors, preach smooth things, speak deceits. That is exactly what people like to hear today. So here's this onslaught against the Word of God, the Bible. It makes me wonder how many of you have really ever read some of what is available in the layman's Bible handbooks. 
Here's the little Halley's Bible handbook that I don't think any person who really believes in the Word of God and the Bible ought to be without. There are certain errors with which I could disagree, particularly in chronology and prophecy and the exposition of certain scriptures, but there's a tremendous amount of archaeological and historical reference to the Word of God, how we got the Bible, and it gives you a flowing pictorial as well as it develops beginning with Genesis right through to the book of Revelation as to how we got the Bible and it takes you into some of the great treasures of the great museums of the world and where you can find some fascinating and interesting information about the Word of God. Many people are completely ignorant of and know nothing about. I want to get into this to show you, first of all, that there is a universal flood tradition. If you were to turn to that in this Halley's Bible Handbook on page 75, you would read not only of the Babylonian tradition of the flood, but many others. Archives of the Temple of Marduk in Babylon, as related by Berossus in 300 B.C., contain this story, and I quote, Zixthros, a king, was warned by one of the gods to build a ship and take into it his friends and relatives and all different kinds of animals with all necessary food. This is directly translated from an old ancient Babylonian cuneiform tablet. Whereupon he built an immense ship which was stranded in Armenia. Upon subsidence of the flood he sent out birds. The third time they returned not, he came out, built an altar, and sacrificed. Fascinatingly accurate, except for the names and a few minor details. The Egyptians had a legend that the gods at one time purified the earth by a great flood from which only a few shepherds escaped. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is obvious. First of all, most biblical scholars, that is the higher critics, deny there ever was a flood. It was merely a local affair, about like these rains the other night up in South Chicago. And a few refugees tippy-toed across an area of rapidly rising water, and later on the traditions around the fireside just grew to immense proportions. You know how some of those people lie. And finally they had the waters standing up on each side and a big wind and sharks coming out and saying oops and diving back in and the people going through dry shod with a wall of water 120 feet high on either side of them. And it just grew around the fireside tales of the Hebrews. Now, of course, about the turn of the century, as a matter of fact, when my father was a young man, there were still a lot of arguments among the higher critics that Moses could not have written the first five books of the Bible. They can't be the books of Moses because writing wasn't even invented by Moses' day. Nobody knew how to write in Moses' day. Well, from some of the British and the French and the German and later American archaeologists who began discovering things like, first of all, the Tel Aramarna tablets and the Rosetta Stone and the Behistun Stone and the Black Obelisk later on, and certain of these stones you can read about in Halley's Handbook, they finally discovered, well, yes, writing was known way back even before Abraham's day. They discovered the code of Kamarabi or Hammurabi, and they found that in ancient nations at the borders, just like in some cases modern borders where they have the border guards today, will have posted laws and certain restrictions involving anything from speed on the highway to customs duties when you come in, that the ancients would, sh would set up a gigantic pillar, and on it in several languages they might write certain codes or laws. And on the border, when you crossed over from one nation into another, you would see what those laws were. Well, he discovered the code of Hammurabi, who was an ancient king. And since he apparently lived at about the same day as, as Abraham, and many scholars believe he is the Amraphel, who was mentioned in the book of Genesis, they decided not that because it is a much earlier writing than Moses, therefore the Bible is accurate, 
But now they decided that the Ten Commandments were borrowed from this pagan Babylonian king's laws so that Moses, yes, maybe he did right, but he borrowed the Ten Commandments from the Code of Hammurabi. You can't win where the scholars are concerned. They will always take the opposite tack to try to destroy the veracity of the Word of God. Greek tradition warned that the gods were going to bring a flood upon the earth for its great wickedness, built an ark which rested upon Mount Parnassus, and a dove was sent out twice. In the Hindus, an ancient tradition, Manu warned, build a ship in which he alone escaped from a deluge that destroyed every living creature. In China, there is a tradition that Hafi, who is the founder of Chinese civilization, is represented as having escaped from a flood sent because man had rebelled against heaven and had a wife, three sons, and three daughters. In England, the ancient Druids had a legend that the world had been repeopled from a righteous patriarch who had been saved in a strong ship from a flood sent to destroy man for his wickedness. Polynesians have a flood tradition where only eight human beings escaped the waters that rose over the entirety of the earth. In Mexico, one man, his wife, and his children were said to have been saved in a ship from a flood which overwhelmed the earth. In Peru, one man and one woman were saved in a box that floated on the flood waters. Among American Indians, various legends in which one, three, or eight people were saved in a boat upon the waters on a high mountain. And in Greenland, the earth once tilted over, and all people were drowned except one man and one woman who repeopled the earth. And then, of course, you can read about Phrygians, about the Eskimos, about Aboriginal Americans, Indians, Brazilians, Peruvians, and every branch of the whole human race. Semitic, Aryan, Turanian have traditions of a great deluge that destroyed all mankind except one family, and which impressed itself indelibly on the memory of the ancestors of all these races before they separated. All these myths are intelligible only on the supposition that some such event did actually occur, such a universal belief, not springing from some instinctive principle of our nature, must be based on historical fact. Wouldn't you say that's a rational conclusion of all of those disparate races and nations, different colors, with different civilizations and societies, widespread over the entirety of the earth, having a remarkably similar flood tradition? This, as I say, is very interesting reading. How did we get the Bible as we have it here before us today? First of all, let me show you how in 1887 an Egyptian woman found some clay tablets halfway between Thebes and Memphis, and obviously they had some strange writing on them that were not Egyptian. They were not the formal Egyptian hieroglyphics, they were not the flowing demotic, which was the language of the people, but a completely different language unbeknownst to her. Well, eventually, when they reached their way into the scholars' hands in a British museum and elsewhere, they were discovered to be official correspondence with Egyptian governors stationed in Palestine with their ruler, King Amenophis IV, about 1380 B.C., and were contemporary to the book of Joshua and relating to those events in some cases. Now, these were clay and cuneiform, and they're called the Tel El Armarna because that's the dig. The word Tel always meant the dig or the mound at Armarna, which is, which is where they were found. And they're mentioned in all of these Bible handbooks. It absolutely proved, notwithstanding what the scholars have been saying for centuries, that writing had been familiarly known and freely used in Palestine 14 centuries before Jesus Christ that the Babylonian language at that time was the universal language of the world, much like French was in the 1800s and like English has become today. 
So now it became known that writing was in vogue long before Moses, and here was the absolute documented proof. So the scholars had to back off and admit they'd made a mistake. They didn't do it exactly like that. That's not the way they do it. But later on, with the discovery of the Rosetta Stone, and that was very fortunate, and I have actually seen the original myself in the British Museum, it has three languages on it. It had, as I mentioned, the hieroglyphics, and right below it, the flowing script of the Demotic. And then, of course, it had Greek. Now, up until that time, there was not a scholar on the face of the earth who could ever walk into the Egyptian monuments and tell you what hieroglyphics meant. But because Demotic was largely known, and Greek was certainly very well known, they could see what the Demotic was from the Greek and then take the Demotic and apply it to the hieroglyphics and come to understand it. Then the higher critics decided that instead of arguing Moses could not have written the Pentateuch because, quote, writing had not in been invented yet, they turned to the writer that existed long before, or the writing rather, and claimed Moses had borrowed his stories from earlier pagan writings. Now, I mentioned the law of Hammurabi, but also the Chaldean legends and the Gilgamesh tablets are mentioned here in Bahali's Bible handbook, and I won't go into that. I want to turn to the book of Romans in the first chapter. In Romans, the first chapter, we see that absolute pagans are indicted of God because God says it is quite possible to know a great deal about Almighty God, about the Godhead and the God family, by looking not necessarily at something that has been written, but looking elsewhere. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Now, again, I want to explain that the Greek word katabalo means holding back or suppressing the truth, not holding it in the sense of possessing it. The King James is a little awkward there. It means to suppress or hold back the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is evident to them, for God has shown it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. How do you understand that statement? Do you understand that you believe firmly and indeed depend upon many things that are completely invisible? You cannot see gravity. You can't see inertia. You really cannot see electricity. You can only see what it produces or what it does when in flowing circuitously back to its source it heats up a wire in an incandescent bulb. You cannot see an atom, although we know that they exist, and we know what they can do when they are used as infusion or fission in nuclear energy to produce fantastic explosions. I've mentioned before, and I won't bore you with the fact that this pulpit behind which I stand is in fact merely energy compacted into a form. It is fiber that tends to be arranged in a certain pattern depending upon the wood, and it's probably oak, from which it came, and it came from the dirt and the soil, and little roots caused it to grow and be put into fiber, and it will last for literally centuries, far beyond the life of a man. Yet with one little match, I'd probably have to get some paper to get it started good, I could convert this thing into so much light and heat and gas and radiated heat and energy in a small pile of ash, couldn't I? How would I do that? I would do it through what is called combustion. I'm not going to stand here and talk to you about what is or what is not fire or combustion. You can look it up in an encyclopedia and find out even they don't know. 
They will try to tell you, but they don't know. They just know that by some process caused, uh, called combustion, you can convert solid into gas and heat and light and energy. And they also know in the principle of the conservation of energy that no new energy is being created and no energy is being lost, that if you could recapture every bit of that energy, that light and that heat and all the gas and the smoke and the ashes, you could in fact reconstitute it into exactly what it once was. It kind of boggles your mind to think that those huge nebula out there that you can see in some of the most recent and exciting pictures from JPL, from some of the space probes, like the Crab Nebula and Orion and so on, are supposed to be stars forming. And that one of them that is shown there, that is a star, is bigger than our entire solar system. And yet it's just so much gas that is gradually gathering together as a gravitational field causes it to become compacted. And when that gas is compacted, what does it become? You ready for a shock? Iron, lead, heavy metals, everything from quartz to mica to hornblende to uranium to everything that we know on this earth today. You can take a rock and convert it back to energy as well. I won't belabor that except to say that the polarity of the earth, the magnetism of the earth, the place that it's held in relation to the sun, the journey of the moon around the earth, tides, the flow of water downhill, gravity that holds us to the earth, every law involving even the air that we breathe, the blooming of a flower, the flight of a bee, the pollinization of plants and growing herbs and things, the fact that we must ingest all this food in order to survive, the use and function of the human hand or the human eye. It says here very clearly, the invisible things of God by looking at that which his hands have produced, which he has created, are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. When we're children, we have a healthy curiosity. When was your curiosity derailed where you were no longer curious? Was it when you became bored in the sixth grade? Was it somehow in formal education, somewhere, somehow, you just, you just decided, I don't want to know anything at all about the chemical formula for quartz. I just don't want to know it. I don't want to know that a part of the chemical formula for quartz is water. I don't want to know that. That you stopped being curious about air, about water, about your own vital organs, about the flow of your bloodstream and what is in it, about the little platelets and the red and white corpuscles and all of these incredibly interesting and intricate things about the human body, in fact about reproduction and how you got here. At some point in time, education, which is that attempt by the older generation to instill into the younger generation its myths, its superstitions, its societal concepts, mores, laws, and traditions, its lies, if you will, because all history is largely interpretive, and education is not, in that sense of the word, honest, but is an absolute blatant lie. In Japan, they just lie to their people about World War II. In America, we lie to our people about World War II. In Germany, they lie to their people about World War II. So when we all have brand new generations who have been swallowing all these lies about World War II, we will have the makings of World War III, because we've all been lied to and we have not really wanted to get at the ultimate essential truth. We become incurious. We don't want to know. When they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, 
I would put my Hebrew against any of them. Didn't I just read that to you? They became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man. But you see, Plato and Epictetus and Socrates and some of the others of later date are still quoted in the big universities today, and many students who have got to study classical Greek literature must learn and quote endlessly the writings of some of those homosexuals of that period. To corruptible men, and to birds, and four-footed creatures, and creeping things. Wherefore, because you see there was a motive in their minds, God gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts. Notice how the Bible links evolution, the desire to explain the creation without a creator, the desire to live in, work with, and actually be in a sense, impacted by, and have your very life sustained, supported, and guaranteed by irrefutable law, and deny a lawgiver, to see in everything that I've mentioned with regard to every law of physical energy, chemistry, science, what have you, uh, reproduction itself, a cycle which is only interrupted at death, but actually has no true beginning that is circular and cyclical throughout nature and that everything is symbiotic and cannot live of and by itself, that we could not live without the plants that absorb carbon dioxide and give off oxygen, that we could not live without the honeybee, etc., 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 without belaboring that, that they do not admit to a sustainer who operates all of these laws. They do not admit, when they look at the intricacy of design, whether you're looking at, again, a crystal of quartz, which inevitably will always have exactly the same number of faces, that when you take a giant sledgehammer and take one little piece of plagioclase feldspar and smash it into dust, you can pick it up and it will always have exactly the same cleavage planes, no matter how microscopic each, each grain or particle is. You cannot break that law. You can't break it with a 15,000-ton sledgehammer and get your grains so tiny you have to look at them a thousand times. It'll still be exactly in that cleavage pattern. And they will still deny that there was a great designer they will set aside the evidence, and I submit to you that the evidence that is available in the lab of a scientist, the evidence available to a medical doctor, the evidence available to a nuclear physicist, to an astronomer, a geologist, a geologist I should say, or to someone who is even studying the uh, biological structure of a frog or what have you, the evidence that these scientists who look into nature is far greater evidence than most of you have ever seen. Yet it seems the more educated they are in those fields, the farther they get away from God. Of course, in our society, we buy our milk in a plastic curtain. We don't go out and take a bucket and get it from a cow. And because we are not in an agrarian society, and because our children do not see life and they do not see things growing out of the ground. They don't realize that our food comes from the mud and the dirt and the gentle rain that falls. They don't see the sunshine as a blessing from God. They don't have acreage of wheat where every time it rains it's worth $6,000 to them. They don't go out, as I said, and harness their animals and plow the fields and see that an animal does not pollute but fertilizes. And so instead of being close to the land, because that's what we are as a little piece of that real estate, that's what we all came from, they live in an artificial, prepackaged, chemically treated, preserved, asphalt, steel and concrete jungle, and they do not see God, they just see what man does, and they completely lose sight of God. But notice the motive. 
He gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed, it should read exchanged, the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. I mentioned on several occasions how I've been in India, and here is a nation far larger than the United States in terms of population, and their God is the cow. They worship cows. Indians are intelligent people. Why, there are people there who have studied some of the ancient monuments and documents that go back to the earliest ancient times of the Indian uh, traditions and uh, ancient history that are lettered and intelligent and have degrees from their great universities. Smart men. They worship cows. They worship a cow. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. What was the motive? What was lying in the background of the lust of man who wants to keep God's nose out of his business, who wants God's eyes and God's immediate intervention out of his affairs and away off in a black hole in the universe, not bothering him any? Perversion, vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another. I don't even want to pass on to you what Larry King Live had on the other night. You will not be able to believe it. You would have had to have a bucket so you could upchuck while you're listening to the discussion they had between a sodomite and a woman who was representing basically fundamental Christianity, arguing over whether or not the sphincter muscle is meant to be engaged in sexual relations. I couldn't believe my ears and my eyes, but they were very gladly and happily arguing and being the champions of their cause. I seem to remember a statement of Isaiah. They declare their sin as Sodom. They hide it not. They parade it. Is it enough that we have all of this in society without seeing a major national weekly news magazine once again taking issue with the sacred word of God, trying to put it down into, I guess, the level of anything you could go by in the magazine rack uh, written by somebody that just had an idea that she wanted to get off her chest to talk about a capricious God, a sort of a fun fella. It's unbelievable when you read this guy's article. It's just unbelievable. And it's a best-selling book. You can probably get on and buy it if you want. I like this next line. I won't belabor it. I like it. It's why I got kicked off of WGN. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet or exactly appropriate or fitting. Unfortunately, Many of the programs that we've had to hear at home in the last couple of weeks and statistics that are coming about out about AIDS in the heterosexual community and among women and the tens of thousands of young married women who are going to give birth this year to babies with AIDS, it is so chilling, it is so disgusting, it is so frightening and so ominous to realize that AIDS may actually eventually grow to the proportions of the bubonic plague with the Black Death of the Middle Ages in England and Europe and kill about 50% of the population before too much longer, maybe a decade or two, that are just growing like wildfire as these absolute queer homosexuals prate and parade and mince around in their, their lobbying even before the government 
and before great church organizations and church bodies to have their rights. And so the Anglican Church gave in. And you may go now to Anglican churches all over England and listen to the voice of the priest. Does it make you sick? You bet. But it has to be a fact. Uh, I've heard estimates by Mr. McBride, who lives over there, that fully 50% of the people standing in those robes supposed to be preaching about Jesus Christ and the Word of God are queers. I know they don't like that word. That's why I like to use it. They don't like that word, but I like to use it. And people hear this tape and they get all upset because they think I am upset or I am mad at queers. Well, now, I have to plead guilty. I'm sorry. I'd love to see them repent and to be converted and to be completely expunged and cleansed and exonerated and changed in their whole attitude. Yes. Would you say God was angry with Sodom and Gomorrah? Would you say, as you look in the Word of God, that God is angry with people who are absolutely killing in the most hideous fashion little babies? and who are destroying the body's ability to even cast off a, a runny nose, AIDS kills you. There is no such human being who ever gets AIDS who lives through it and conquers the disease. When you get AIDS, you die. Where did it come from? Sodomy. And it spills over in the heterosexual community because people have partners that are on both sides. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them, gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. And then he lists the, the egregious or the horrible sins of all of mankind, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things. You think of the arms race. Disobedient to parents. And there's a great deal of that, of course, today in the breakup of the family. Without understanding, covenant breakers, their word is no good. Contracts are no good. Promises are no good. Yes, it's in the mail. Sure it is. Sure, we'll do it on time. Sure, we'll do it for so many dollars. Without natural affection, but plenty of the unnatural kind. Implacable, unmerciful who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Now, as I look at the work that Almighty God has called us to do, and look at the book of Isaiah where he says, Cry aloud, spare not, show my people their sins. I am moved to write in the articles appearing in the international news and in the months to come, the one new booklet to which we have committed every single month more and more indictments against the sins of the United States of America, the British Commonwealth of Nations, and in fact all of our English-speaking democracies of Northwestern Europe, and indeed all mankind, because the book of Isaiah is a message to all nations. Coming up very shortly is one which shows why God is going to send the Great Tribulation upon the United States of America. On that one, I have omitted some words that I'm going to put in one which will come along a little later, utilizing some of the letters we get on Friday morning prayer breakfast to pray about. And on this one particular article coming up in the next issue, I'm going to show that Almighty God put the Sabbath as his test commandment, and that always Israel, in ignoring the Sabbath, went immediately into idolatry, but idolatry always had a purpose. 
If you study what happened in the cavorting around the golden calf when Moses did not come down from the mountain as quickly as they thought he should, you will find that everything there was of a libidinous, sexual nature. It was orgiastic. It was back in. It was absolutely the desire to satiate one's flesh with the lusts of the flesh and not to have a divine, almighty God who said, don't do that. Don't commit fornication. Don't commit sodomy. Don't commit adultery. It destroys your family. It destroys your health. It destroys the relationship between a wonderful husband and wife. It destroys your children. And the society is only as intact and as good as the underpinnings of that society, which is its family, that it destroys your family. So they had motives. Well, I have a very lengthy article coming up indicting people for Sabbath-breaking and attempting to show people who will thumb their nose, most of them, 90% or more, who will sneer and scorn and scoff that the Sabbath is on a par with murder. That when you break God's Sabbath day, you may as well have stabbed somebody or shot somebody because it's equal with thou shalt not kill. You shall do no murder. And when you're asked to pray, as we have been recently, letters that come that literally are tears splattered. Family in Chicago that sent us a letter the other day that asked us to pray for a family that was having trouble dealing with the loss of a six-month-old baby girl who was left on a bed in a party, in a home, in a neighborhood. And when they came back into the bedroom, they found someone had raped a six-month-old baby girl, and she was dead. And we're supposed to pray that the family who lost the girl can handle the loss. People write me letters where they blister me good for getting a little bit excited about sin, about homosexuality, about bestiality, about child molestation. I had a letter from one lady who misunderstood. Her son is homosexual. She doesn't want her son to hear anything I've got to say. Well, she'd better be glad that Almighty God is not dealing with homosexuality today the way he did during the days of Abraham, and hope and pray that her son can bitterly repent of that hideous, abominable sin in the sight of God, and have God change his mind. You and I, perhaps as rational human beings, and I trust that we are, cannot deal with what goes on in the mind of a human being. It sometimes makes me sick to my heart that I'm a man. I'm embarrassed to stand here as a man to convey to you that a man raped a six-month-old baby girl. It makes me ashamed of my manhood. How can a man do such a thing? unless he is possessed of Satan the devil, and so twisted and so perverted he deserves one thing. And what is that? Death. I say he deserves death. I won't even go into what kind of death or by what means, but I've got a few inventive ideas. But Almighty God is going to repay people for these sins. God says even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to all of this. And I say that attacks on the Word of God, that churches that preach smooth things and speak deceits that have six million dollar budgets and queers in the pews are a stench in the nostrils of Almighty God and only further indication of how far down the drain our beloved United States of America has gone. Christ said, Behold, I looked and there was no intercessor. He looked and there was no witness. We must not let down on the job we must give a witness and a warning to God's people. Our articles must not flag or fail. 
They must be consistently strong and poignant and to the point. The trumpet must not give an uncertain sound. We must deal with AIDS, with homosexuality, with child molestation, with a catalog of the infamous sins of our peoples in no uncertain terms, and we must not back away because somebody will put on the hair shirt and wring the hand and carry a placard in front of City Hall and talk about the rights of everybody from a queer to some animal that's supposed to have more rights than little babies uh, below the poverty level in the United States of America, for pity's sake. We have a warning message. We know that we must preach it, and we know we must not flag, and we must not draw back. I have oftentimes thought that it's time for me to preach a powerful sermon right from God's Word on the family, on the direct relationship between husband and wife. Oftentimes I have thought, well, perhaps that wouldn't be best this Sabbath, because how would that go down out here on the tape program? How would a lot of people who are single mothers, unfortunately, women who have to work, unfortunately, women who, if they hadn't really run the family, the family wouldn't have been there and wouldn't have been intact, take a few scriptures out of the inviolable Word of God that very clearly states what is the appropriate role of a man and a woman in the family. I tell you, all of those constraints are just beginning to shed right off my back. I'm getting to the point where I don't care who the Word of God hurts. If the Word of God hurts, so let it hurt. If it cuts, so let it cut. If it bothers or beleaguers, so let it bother and let it beleaguer. The Word of God is sharp like a two-edged sword, and you can determine that it is the inviolable Word of God. It is the only Word of God. It is all there is. It is divinely inspired. And now finally, let me just point this out to you. These higher critics and scholars who can very, very beautifully, with their flow of words and language in their articles and books, show you that the Bible is a collection of a fragment here and a piece there and a fragment the other place. I am well aware that the first chapter of Genesis and the first several six chapters, actually, of the book of Genesis contain what is called eleven hymns. And I'm aware that those may have been written by Adam and by Seth, and by Enoch, and by other people prior to the flood, and that Moses may have carried a few records in his day, and that prior to him some of the patriarchs may have kept records, that family records were kept, and bits and pieces and fragments were gathered together. But it doesn't bother my mind that the great God who made the universe and put the sun in the heavens, and is the author, the designer, and the sustainer of all these laws I've talked about, is able to guide the mind of a man from time to time, as he decides. I know that Moses couldn't have written about Moses' own death, and therefore I know Moses could not have written the last chapter of Deuteronomy, don't I? Because it said Moses died and was buried. It doesn't bother me that Ezra, many years later, may have come along and added his notations. I also can see in the last chapter of the book of Joshua that Joshua was commanded to write something, and then it said Joshua died. So I know that Joshua didn't write about his own death, don't I? But that doesn't bother me because I know God could have inspired a man. I may be surprised at some point in time, in the beginning of the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ on this earth, to discover that at some point in time, my father, sitting before his typewriter, with the word of God open before him, wrote a particular article that is utterly bereft of a single error. Now, if your child looks up at you and says in his little squeaky children's voice, you shouldn't eat pork, 
Is that divinely inspired? You bet. He's merely conveying to you a portion of the Word of God. The Bible is a living witness. It doesn't depend upon paper and ink or papyrus or vellum or even stone. The fact that God is still alive and that Christ is alive and that he guarantees the outcome of his word is what is important. There's a great deal more beside this that I wanted to get to and I don't really have time today. But I had to take issue with a couple of these articles that have been appearing lately. It does tell us that we are to watch and I don't think that means always merely watch world news. I think sometimes you've got to keep a careful watch on what's happening in society around you and in attacks against the very sacred word of God.